Lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another episode of Playing Records with John. I'm your host, John. Now, it's been a long time since I've said those words, but I'm excited to be back with this new episode. My guest today is somebody who I've known since I was a teenager, but you may know her from her early work with the band Little Red Rocket, or from Azure Ray, her long-running collaboration with her dear friend Arinda Fink, or from any of her seven solo albums. And if you don't know her, you're about to know her. It's Maria Taylor, and she's someone who I've wanted to talk to for this show for a long time. I really loved getting a chance to talk with Maria, and I hope you love hearing it. All you need to know by way of preface is that before we talked, I asked Maria to send me a playlist of songs by her that we could talk about in chronological order and just use that as the backbone of our conversation. She did that, now you know, so here we go. This is Maria. Getting ready for this conversation, there was a lot of stuff to listen to. I don't know if you had that sense of the whole catalog, but you've you've done a lot of things uh, since you since you started. Is, I mean, is it better for you just not to think about that? Um, I guess I don't really. I mean, sometimes I do realize like when I'm making, I'm about to play some shows and I'm making the set list and I'm, you know, I'm like remembering all these different albums and all these songs. I'm like, just shit. But it actually just makes me feel just old. I'm like, wow, <laughs> like you know. To have done, put out this many songs, I have to be very old. But it's fun. It was fun just trying to, you know, come up with the songs to play at these shows that I'm about to play. We're going to do an acoustic, unplugged version. So I was actually doing the same thing, like going through all of my back catalog. It's going to be two acoustic guitars and then my brother on bass and just my sister doing percussion and singing. So also there's just songs that, you know, could never really work that way and other songs that could really shine that way. So it's fun to listen, you know, thinking about that kind of instrumentation. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing I've ever thought about when I am writing music, but when when you can take the long view on a bunch of things you've written and realize that that certain things fit into a category or or a uh a vibe. And I hate to use that word, but unfortunately I use it constantly. Me too. You have plenty of music that works in that acoustic setting. Um, that would be the temptation maybe to lean on those. But yeah, taking a song that didn't exist in that setting and then putting it in that setting often gives it a lot of room to breathe. Mm-hmm. And like what I found often is the case when I'm, I'm used to a song that sounds very produced and I hear it uh, acoustically, is that I'm able to actually appreciate the melody more. Like whatever the structure was, whatever the original idea of the song is, often comes through clearer in those arrangements. Or the lyrics. The lyrics can take on, you know, a different meaning, I feel like. If you're, you know, playing a pop song that has heavy drum and bass, and then suddenly you play it just acoustic with, you know, some sad keys, it can really change, to me, like, the sentiment of the song. Yeah, almost to the extent that in a big rock version of a song, the sentiment might not even register. Right, absolutely. When I heard that it was gone 
really glad you shared this with me. I thought it was adorable and and uh, and funny, but also very relatable in a sense. Uh, as far as that, you know, uh, how early you got in on this idea that oh, it's kind of cool to be on tape. But you sent me a song called "Ria Sings the Blues" from 1979. Which, correct me if my math is wrong, but that means you were between three and four mm-hmm. when you uh, when you had this many feels. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what you remember. I, I, I gather that this is kind of part of a ritual of your dad, who was a musician, recording you. I really have a vivid memory um, of that time period. My mom was working at ASFA back then, and so she was a school teacher, and my dad would play in bands at night, so he would stay home with me every day. And just, I mean, a lot, you know, Many hours of every day we spent them just making music. And I had this little toy house, a cardboard house, and we turned it into a studio. So I actually had a mic stand in it um, with headphones. It was just set up. So I would go in there and my dad would just press record and I would just sing and sing. So, I mean, we have so many cassette tapes of me just singing. And back then, like you can tell in that recording, I couldn't even... I didn't even, half of it, they weren't even real words. You know, I'm just sounding out what I think words are. Um, But then my dad would play guitar with me too. So we just have, yeah, hours and hours of recordings of me just singing my heart out. So I guess I just, I was born loving, loving to sing, even before I could talk. Obviously, at that point, absorbed a lot of music. Yeah. So I'm sure that might come from the same. If your dad is recording hours and hours of you, and he's playing his instruments, I'm sure that maybe there were records being played around the house too. But it's funny to me how much that improv, that scat, whatever you want to call what you were doing there, <laughs> it really shows a knowledge of at least a certain form of the blues song because there's a little structure to it, and when you come back to it, there's little variations. I know. I wonder if he was listening to to lots of blues then, or I mean, he must have been, but I just like, cause I remember back from that time period, just the Beatles all the time. And you know, they played like Tom Waits and Stevie Wonder, but I mean, he, he does like the blues. So I'm sure that clearly I was trying to emulate something I'd heard. Well, I mean, there's something in there about somebody leaving you or you're coming back or there's somebody turning around. And my body. Don't I say like my body or something? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. One of the funniest parts of the recording is the very end, which actually I caught you lifted that to put at the end of the little, um, on your album, Lynn Teeter Flower. Yes. Thank you very much. We're going to have some more tunes, but we're not going to stop. Let's stop and listen to that. Okay. Let's just stop for now. We'll do it again later on. We're stopping, Mama. I love that. Even at, at three going on four. You're saying, like, we're not going to (laughs) stop. And we're not going to stop. Yeah. 
it's really like you're taking a set break. Hey, folks, thanks. You know, tip tip your bartender. We're going to play some more songs for you. But then we're not going to stop is one of those great little kid things that I feel like in a way you were saying to your dad, hey, dad, we're not done here. You know, because it feels like he's saying, let's take a listen to it. And you're yeah. kind of being like, yeah, but we're going to come back and do some more. Right. Because, you know, because I'm, I'm never, not done. I'm never I got stopping. something to say. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you haven't. It's <laughs> so funny because, I mean, I've always like when I was that age, I loved to perform in front of people and I but now I mean that's my um I mean I, I have terrible nerves and when I get on stage I'm so nervous um but I just wonder where that happened like when did I suddenly become I don't know so shy because I used to I just loved it yeah I just always wanted to perform I wanted a microphone in front of me and um I was a ham my happy place is in the studio and making the music and that's where I feel confident and I know what I'm doing and I'm just, you know, so I don't even, I never second guess myself and I just, it feels pretty easy. So, but then, you know, even right now, like I'm going through where I can't sleep at night. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm up all hours just because I'm nervous about these shows coming up. So, and then once I'm on stage, I mean, usually after three or four songs, I mean, I'll be, I'll usually shake my, my hands are shaking and you can tell like the vibrato in my voice is more intense the first couple of songs because I'm just shaky. So you structure the set list that way, right? Anything that involves a lot of vibrato, put it up front. Yeah, I should. And then, um, and then I get relaxed. I mean, and I also, you know, I use alcohol to calm my nerves and that was hard when I was pregnant and touring because I had to... I had to learn how to, to do it without any alcohol. And I felt like that's when I really grew a lot um, in that way, just learning how to just find it. You know, I could just calm myself down and I could learn how to be comfortable and to be, I don't know, not be insecure. Like I, I found it's from something other than red wine. The nerves I feel about performing, because I'm kind of useless, like the day of a show, maybe even the night before, but definitely the day of a show, if I'm playing any music, uh -huh. I'm just in my head about it all day. And it's like, oh, I'm God. trying to run drills of what might happen. And I've discovered similar to you that like self-medicating, you know, uh -huh. is a great way <laughs> to deal with that. Oh yeah. Uh, but, but, but then I realized recently it's like, or you could practice more. <laughs> Drinking is easier. But the practicing doesn't help me. You know, like I could practice all day long and I'm still, I'm just a ball of nerves. And my mom used to tell me that sometimes she would say when I was on stage, she said, you just look like you'd rather be just at home on the sofa. You know, like I just, and I was like, God, yes, because I do. Like I just am so nervous and I don't know really what I'm nervous about. And so that part, you know, when, I, when I'm done with the show, just going through that whole like roller coaster of emotions and anxiety, I feel like it's, yeah, like I did just skydive, you know, I'm just like, wow, I mean, it's just the best drug. And I just feel like, you know, I'll just be thinking about it for, for days and days, like, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. And then there's another show coming up and I'm like, oh God, and it's the same roller coaster, the same, you know, I mean, and it gets easier when you're on tour, but now I don't really tour much. So I have shows just spread apart. So there's a whole lot of room for terrible anxiety in between <laughs> each one. There's never a better time to, to be around me than if, when I've just played a decent set. Yeah, it's just great. But then when people, if they come up to me before a show, I mean, they ask, you know, are you okay? Or what's wrong? I'm like, yeah, just don't talk to me right now. You know, I just, I act like a total weirdo and I can't really even hear what they're saying. I just, um, I can't focus. So, but yeah, afterwards, uh, that's the best me you're going to find. You mentioned ASFA in passing, and I should say that that is the accepted pronunciation of the acronym for the Alabama School of Fine Arts 
which is the school that we both went to. And it's kind of fun that I've been able to sit back and enjoy your music so much over these years. When I remember, I mean, there's a few things I feel like I've got jumbled thoughts. One is you mentioned your mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. She was the cool guidance counselor. I don't know. (laughs) There aren't that many people I can interview for this show that I can say that to, that your mom was my, was my guidance counselor. (laughs) And then also on top of that, I believe, were you or were you not in the dance department Uh when you went to the School of Fine Arts? Okay, so you were, after that lifetime of music and having your own uh, cardboard, you mentioned it was a cardboard music studio. That is actually great for deadening the sound. So you were a genius when you were a kid. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you had that going on and it was so musical and your father was a musician who I imagine instruments were just laying around the house. Your brother is a musician. Your sister is a musician. Um, I don't know if your mom plays. I know she's cool. Does Does she play anything? She doesn't, but she's a music lover, and she's got a great ear. Wouldn't her life suck if she wasn't a music lover at this point? <laughs> yeah, it would really suck. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you went from from that, and then you went into this magnet school that we both went to. I was there for visual arts, and I was a few years ahead of you. But you were in the dance department. I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I thought that was an interesting kind of unexpected thing, because when I knew you, you were dancer Maria, who then I, I found out later was a musician because you and your... Your friend Arenda used to sing Indigo Girl songs at parties that I attended. <laughs> and it was like, oh, yeah, those girls that have the really great voices, that have the really great harmonies. I mean, I think that was something I responded to immediately when I heard you when I was, like, I don't know, 16 or 17 at some party. I know. Just you saying this actually made me think, like, no one's ever asked me, you know, why ballet? I mean, you were making music and playing music and loved music ever since you were born. Why did you go to the school? You could have gone into the music department. Like I, God, I don't even know why. I but I just wanted to be a ball. I wanted to be a ballerina, and um, so I don't. I mean, because I was also dancing ballet ever since I was three. Also, so I guess I was actually dancing and playing music around the same time. But I think it's interesting now when I because I've been getting into writing, um, arranging string parts for my the last couple of records. I've um, written the string parts, and. I feel like um, the melodies and the string arrangements come from all of my years of dancing at ASFA because we danced to classical music. And, you know, when we would perform, um, we would have the orchestra behind us. And I just can remember, like, lying on the stage and watching them practice and warm up and just having chills, you know, full body chills from hearing those violins and all those instruments play those amazing parts together and um, that had an influence on the music that I write. Now the next song you selected to talk about is an Azure song, but we don't want to give Little Red Rocket short shrift in this conversation. band that I remember you being in, um, and I believe it was the first band you were in with uh, Arenda as well. She was the Lennon to your McCartney, if you will, in that sense. You met somebody with whom you had this musical love affair <laughs> that seems to be still very fruitful. And in 1997, you put out the album, uh, Who Did You Pay? And in 2000, you put out the album, It's In The Sound. I just can't skip over those records in this conversation simply because Little Red Rocket was one of the first local bands that really appealed to me. Like the melodies were there at the time. Um, 
I mean, the Pixies were very big, and you guys reminded me in some ways of that sort of two guitars, bass, drums. It's very stripped down, but somehow it's this super poppy, super catchy music. We started out playing Indigo Girl covers, like you said, at, at parties. Like, no one even asked. We just would pull out the guitar and just start playing. Like, actually, how we, our play, we played our first show, we would go outside of clubs at Soundcheck and beg the bands that were loading in to let us please come up on stage and play like two songs in the middle of their set. And they, we were just these young girls and they were like, oh, okay, we'll let them, you know what I mean? So that's how we got, uh, we established relationships with these clubs was actually because we would just beg these bands to give us a break and let us just play. I mean, we just loved, we just loved playing. And so then from there, um, we just started writing our own songs. And I mean, pretty much Little Red Rocket was just, two high school friends that just loved music and we loved each other and it was a way that we could just I mean I don't know we just were that's how we would love to share our time was playing music and and then eventually it was you know we loved to travel together and we just um I don't know but it was just all it was always an extension of our friendship and I don't think we were aware we didn't really even listen at that point to the breeders or anything really cool like we just kind of we were just just play and we learned how to play bar chords and we we had a great I feel like we always had a good sense of melody and um we we learned our harmonies from the best just playing Beatles songs and Indigo Girls songs and so we just kind of like went for it and I feel like through having fun we started to hone our craft but at first we weren't we weren't really trying it was just having fun and then you got signed. Well, that's when shit got real. <laughs> I went from going, that would be so cool, to instantly hearing how it's like, eh, it's not that great. I learned immediately. I mean, even like right when we got signed and when it was like, oh God, this is not good. Like we're, we're tough. Like nothing ever was going to destroy us and no one, but you know, we, we pretty much saw immediately that this was not, I mean, we're so young, you know, like I said, we were just doing it for fun. We didn't even know who, who we were as people or what our scene was or what, but it was, it was, I think if anything, getting signed to a major label helped us pretty quickly realize like who we were and our scene and what we wanted. And it was definitely not that world, you know, I mean, we, the, they, they said they wanted to sign us and they were going to put the, you know, all these promises and then, um, you know, they just kept saying, well, we're not hearing a single. And so we just kept writing songs and recording songs and spending all this money and, and people's time. And, but they wouldn't release it, you know, and then we would come to LA and they were like, you guys need to dress sexier. I mean, this is the time where we, I, we had combat boots and like all black, but it was good because we didn't know really who we were. We hadn't even thought about that. That was like an afterthought. Like, I mean, I, we just didn't even think about it. So it was just kind of good. Cause you do need to realize like, what is your message? Who are you? Like, how do you want to be perceived? And so we just realized this was not us. And shortly after we got dropped, and it was the best thing that ever happened to us. We just said, we will never do that again. Too much. 
found an independent label to work with. And then, um, you know, we had stuff happen, and I don't know if we want to go there yet, but when my, my boyfriend Peter died, that was pretty much when Little Red Rocket ended, and that's when we started Azure Ray, but, but we had already signed with an independent label for our second Little Red Rocket album. Um, and we already, I, I, I don't know, it just, we learned a lot from it, so I can't say that it was a bad experience, but um, sometimes you just have to learn lessons through bad experiences. There's one little Red Rocket question that I just have to ask. Does a recording exist of your cover of As We Go Up, We Go Down by Guided by Voices? Is there anything, a board recording, something somewhere? I thought that was one of the best covers I've ever heard. Yeah, we do. I think we put out, I think, let me think about this. I think we put out a seven inch and I think that was the B side. And I don't know where the seven inch uh, is. <laughs> Because I don't think we have it in any digital form. I think we went into an analog studio. I mean, I love that song. It is obviously a great song. And, and the Guided by Voices version is a, is a really cool recording. Um, and Robert Pollard as a vocalist is no slouch. I don't know. When I listen to theirs, I tend to go, yeah, this doesn't have Maria and Arenda on it. So uh, that song's a little bit of a holy grail for me. Arenda might have it. Arenda was good at saving saving things in boxes. I just wouldn't, I don't know. I'm not the best. I used to think it was farcical when a musician would talk about their own career like they didn't know how many songs they had recorded or they didn't know what year something had come out or they didn't remember oh, really? a particular... I, I just used to think that was strange, but now I totally get it. There are several old, like, Little Red Rocket or Azure songs where not only do I not remember, I don't remember if it was, like, my song or Rinda's, and I can't even tell our voices apart sometimes. I'm like, wait, am I, which one am I? You know, there's plenty where I just... Because, you know, sometimes when you write for a record, you write a song and it goes on the record and you never play it live and you never play it again after the studio. You know, you wrote it in your bedroom, you record it in the studio and then that's it. And so, I don't know, there's just a lot of days that have passed in between the time you recorded it and now. So it's easy to forget. My band, which has been dormant for a year or so, I used to think that was strange too, but now I realize that's not <laughs> very weird at no. all. We have a set list now that we've played. Like the last few times someone has said, play a show, guys. We go, yeah, let's do it. And we, we go into the practice pad and there's not enough time to get a bunch of new stuff up on its feet. Mm -hmm. And so we end up playing the same 12 to 14 <laughs> songs. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, it's a great set. Like, you know, if we were like, a, if we were going around doing corporate gigs or something or weddings, I'd be like, this is our set. You know, I know where to play this song. Exactly. But, but it's a little weird to realize we've, we've got a greatest hits kind of museum piece set when we have all these really cool songs that were recorded that have never been played or never been played like the recording that if I was a fan of that band, Rosemary Stretch, mm -hmm. I would be like, why are they not playing this, 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 or this? You know, like there's so many things that we just don't have the time to do. And it's very strange to think that you don't have the time to do it because people would think, oh, don't you know your songs? But the truth is, no, often no. when I've recorded it, it's, that's my way of getting it out of my brain is to record it. I'm honestly, some songs are totally dead to me and I love them. Yes. Exactly the same. And Azure, we were just laughing about that because, you know, we've been playing some shows lately and it's, it's the same. We are playing the same exact songs that we would always play. We're not trying any new ones, but it's really because we don't, 
I have two kids and Arinda is, she's now in California, but she's still, you know, three hours away. And so when she comes into town, we have a limited amount of time to practice. And we know, we know that we can make these sound good. And so we're not going to get any, we're not going to, I don't know. We just don't have the time really to try out any others. But one day I'd love to, because there are some that deserve the time. We've been referring to Azure Ray throughout this conversation, and now we're at the moment where it, it's important to talk about how Little Red Rocket evolved into Azure Ray. Obviously, you and Arenda are the thread there. The first song that you selected is a song from your first album called Sleep. Yeah, that was that was the first record, the first self-titled record. I will say that Little Red Rocket probably, it would have kept going on and Azure would have absolutely never happened if it weren't for Peter, my boyfriend, who died in the van with us after a Little Red Rocket show. Um, and so then I didn't want to play any of those songs ever again. I couldn't get in the van ever again. I, um, you know, I just couldn't even hear the, the name Little Red Rocket. You know, I was just, it was, I was in shock. And so... We started writing these songs, and Arinda and I, at that point, I was living with my boyfriend, but then when he died, I moved in with Arinda. And so we just were writing these songs just as, just they were therapeutic songs for us to get through. You know, this is how we, this is how, this was our medicine. You know, we loved singing together, and we loved writing music. So we were doing this, and we had absolutely, we had no intention of even releasing it. And we played this benefit show for Peter, and it was, or a, it was a, not a benefit, it was a memorial show. And we played these songs, and um, Brian Causey, a friend of ours who lived in Athens, came up to us that show, and he just said, these songs... You know, what are your plans with them? We're like, oh, nothing. Like, these are just, we just wrote these this last month or two. And and so he just said, you know, I, I have this new label called Warm, and I would just love to put these out. And I have one of my best friends. His name is Eric Bachman. He's in this band, Archers of Loaf. And I didn't even know who that, I mean, I kind of heard who that was. But, you know, our friend Brad Armstrong, he's a huge fan. So when I told him, he's like, what? You're going to work with what? You know, but I really didn't even know. So I didn't even really, I just was like, okay. I mean, and at that point we were just, so we didn't even know. We, I remember we went home, we talked about it. Like, do we want to record these songs or do we, they just were nothing like our Little Red Rocket songs. And we just couldn't even wrap our head around what they would sound like or what. And we just said, all right, let's do it. studio and so much I mean I just think they were 100% emotionally driven and they were um, just cathartic to us and how we dealt with this death but then Eric Bachman came in and just he arranged them and he added I mean you can really hear when you hear his Crooked Fingers songs 
Like you can hear what he added to it and just his sound mixed with these just real songs that were from straight from our hearts. And um, I just think it was just this really, it was a really great combination. And I think that it was the first time I was ever really, really proud of, and it's just funny because like we weren't even thinking about it, but that was when I listened to it, like Little Red Rocket was so fun, but it wasn't necessarily, it didn't sound like the music I was listening to on my in my own time. And then when I listened to these Azure songs and they were done, I was just like, whoa, like we finally put out a record that sounds like the kind of music that I actually, like I've always been more um, connected to just sadder songs and slow songs. this sense of pride that I had never felt before in any of anything that I had been a part of musically and it was just it also um, I don't know I guess because every word it just it, it meant so much it was so important and it was all about Peter and his death and it just you know what I mean I don't know no, I do know what you mean, actually. Maybe it's something that people on an abstract level, people might expect from musicians is that they're going to write about really deep, personal things. But there's a certain limit you have to set for yourself of like, how much do I want to relive this emotion over and over again? And also maybe on some level, am I cheapening something in my personal life by, by writing that? But I wrote some songs around the time when my father died that were very similar to that for me, where I just thought... There's, I'm tapping into something that might be, and this is, boy, this is going to sound pretentious perhaps, but like useful to people. Well, yeah, I think that's why we were nervous about releasing it because it was just like, it felt kind of like, oh, I don't know if we should do that. Like this isn't, but then once I, we did it, I think it, it, people do. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have said like, thank you. Like these got me through a hard time and lots of it. It's not people experiencing death, but it's just when they break up or, you know, when they lose someone in whatever way. Um, and so I, I've always thought that was cool too. Like, it's not just, I feel like people that have had to deal with someone that they loved who has died, like those aren't the people, the only people who can really relate to these songs. Cause it can mean something different to other people, but I don't know. I feel like it is, it's always, I mean, if you feel like doing it, I think that people, someone out there will appreciate it. Well, I think you did an admirable job of, uh, balancing the specifics of what you were going through with something that can be more generally applied to the uh, listener. Um, there's there's an almost um, graceful quality to vagueness sometimes. We did make them vague, and for that reason. And I never, I felt uncomfortable even mentioning that any of the songs were about death, and I never even mentioned his name um, until, until like a few years ago. I mean, it might have been like two years ago, and it was the first time in a couple of interviews where I started talking about it because I felt like it was just so, I don't know. Now I'm more like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I can talk about it now, but back then for, for lots of reasons, a, I am, I'm a little, I just didn't want to open up that much and I wanted to respect his family and him. And I just, you know, so I never, I, I assumed everyone thought 
the songs were about a breakup and I was fine with that. But it's um, interesting now people who have like listened to those songs when they hear what that's what it's about. And they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. So, I mean, I think sometimes as songwriters, we're, we're guilty of like inflating romantic um, despair into this existential crisis of the, you know, that's just the biggest thing in the world. And I think sometimes that's what you want a pop song to do is to take a feeling that you might have and make it operatic, make mm-hmm. it big. But when you're encountering real operatic shit in your life, you realize how, oh, that's actually a slippery slope then to create this sense of drama around the littlest thing. Right. Right. Clearly, that there's a disconnect between the narrator of the song and the person they're talking to, and you can't assume that it's death. Most people didn't realize it was about death, and I didn't, I didn't say that until 20 years later. It's interesting to me that through all that difficulty, in the course of kind of breaking up and reforming and everything that was going on, that uh, it doesn't sound like the musical partnership between you and Arenda was ever really in jeopardy. No. Yeah. I mean, it was exactly like what I said. We we were in the van when Peter died and um, it just, and it was a Little Red Rocket show. So I think we both kind of knew that something, you know, more than just he, he, yeah, more than just he had died that night. Like that was like, we, we needed a shift. And so then, yeah, we were still just working together. And I mean, we knew we would still make music together. And it just, and you know, the, we didn't, again, like we, it, what, these songs, we had no intention of releasing them. And so Brian Causey, who had this label, Warm, who put it out, like he named the band. He was just like, well, what about Azure Red? Because we were like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they like came up with the cover art. They came up with a name. He said, I went, why don't you work with Eric Bachman? Um, so a lot of it, I'm so proud of it, but I feel like, I mean, I can't take credit for lots of it. I mean, we just had these you know, these songs that were emotionally charged and super sad and real. And um, Eric Bachman, really, they, he made them sound the way they sound. And Brian Causey has this a really great sense of aesthetic. And he kind of gave us this look. And then we became Azure. But it was it was just a group of people helping us. Something changed with with Azure, and I feel like we figured out just kind of who we wanted to be as artists. Like when that record came out and when we heard it, it was just kind of, it really opened our eyes and guided us into the next phase of our musical life. Yeah. his whole he has these soundscapes in all of his songs and he has these loops that he makes you know he makes them with actual like with his guitars and there I just think that his loops are great so and I learned so much from him like now when I put out solo records like lots of times I'm like what would Eric do um and then he also he's a brilliant arranger with string he writes these beautiful string parts and horn parts and just I, I mean pretty much the all the way it sounded the the vibe, the word that we like to use. Um, this is a no shame zone <laughs> for the word vibe. Okay. I think that musicians, if musicians are talking, we should be able to say the word vibe to each other. It's, it's what it's meant for. If you're not a musician and you're using the word vibe, you should really question whether you've earned the right. <laughs> okay. So, but I mean, I'm going to give Eric like mad props because it was really him. Like we, if we had gone into the studio 
with us and we're in just some people that we were telling them what to do, you know, even if they were like great players, if we were like, but play this, play this, it would not have sounded anything like sleep or any of those songs on the record. Like that was, mm-hmm. that was Eric. He, he turned us into Azure. That's interesting to hear you speaking of that and having had it be a positive experience, because I think you can have this sort of negative version of somebody who's kind of shaping a band. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a music incubator. It's like, it's like they provided a nice structure for you and Orenda to grow your brand. I hate, boy, there's a word I'm really sorry I used, but there is something about Azure <laughs> that you had to kind of, I mean, I, I know this from being in different projects. When a band exists or when a project exists, you sort of do have to arrive at whatever the shared understanding of what this project is. Right. There was something about a new Azure recording that had something to kind of lean on as far as that mood, even if you weren't always writing about the same subject. Uh, as you were in the beginning, it carried that mood, that kind of slow, airy. Hypnotic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there was, um, they, they, no one was doing that right then too. Like we just, you know, Eric helped us get this sound and Brian Causey recognized it and knew that, you know, he put us together. So like, and then, um, no one was doing it. Like this whole whispery, soft, sad, like, I think that we kind of started not to like toot my own horn, but I really feel like we started sort of that like whisper, soft, um, like, yeah, loops. Like I, we, there's, we kind of started something. And then I've heard so many bands since then. And, but I, I feel like no one was really doing it. And I'm not taking full credit, like I said, because we didn't, you know, this is a Eric, like so much of it was him, but, um, but then it became us, and then we continued to make records with him and without him, and that was kind of our, yeah, our sound and our mood. But um, I think we we were doing something different, and it's kind of sometimes I feel like God, I wish that we had, I wish there was social media back then because I hate social media in some ways, but also like we just had no exposure, like we weren't, we were anti-major labels, we were just like do it yourself with a small indie label, we toured. I mean, we just toured all of the time. We had no money. We slept in our car. Like we would go sleep in the parking lot of Hilton so we could go and use the nice bathrooms in the lobby in the morning with, they actually had real washcloths so we could like wash our faces. You know, I mean, we were just like hardcore, like everything for the love of music, didn't want anything in return. Um, And I think for all the hard work that we did, we really did get it out there. Like we did have like, you know, by the end of it, we were selling out small shows. Um, but I'm like, God, I just wish that it had been easier to spread the word now. It's just like, it's so, because I think we were doing something new and something cool. And, I, but, you know, I don't know. Well, first off, that sleeping in cars stuff and doing it for the love of music is very, very cool. And I think it's awesome <laughs> that you and Orinda had that sort of uh, experience, even though I know it was probably hellish at a lot of times. Oh, but we loved it. <laughs> right. But I mean, you find yourself being nostalgic for these hard times, and I don't know why that is. Oh, but yes. <laughs> Great. 
the things I really appreciate about your singing style is the amount of uh, restraint or control that you exhibit, even when you're dealing with this larger-than-life subject matter that would lead a lot of other singers to be, um, you know, hyperbolic or, or melodramatic. Uh, and I stress it's one of my favorite kinds of singing is where someone can land the song technically and emotionally, but they do it without sucking up all the oxygen in the room. It shows an interpreter's gift for letting lyrics speak for themselves and letting there be space in an arrangement. It also gives the delivery a kind of deadpan quality, and that's something I really like, but I was wondering if that's something you think about ever. It's, it's unintentional. It's funny, like sometimes I think that I'm really giving it my all, and then I listen back, and then I hear that. I'm like, I don't know why. I, I feel like there is this deadpanness that I'm not actually trying. I'm not trying for it to sound like that, but I can't. Like I. I don't know the same if I ever if I'm on a, if someone's recording me like a video and I'm they're like okay act really happy or like do something and then if I look back I'm like oh my god I barely look like I'm smiling like in my mind it's um, maybe that's me being self conscious I don't know in my mind I think oh my god that's gonna look crazy and then I see it and it's like you know <laughs> barely anything but it's funny I just actually recently like as of this week I tried to write a song for. Um, I don't know. I was. My son told me I need to. Sell, he's getting into like European DJs because I think he hears them on video games. Anyway, long story, but we kind of submitted. Azure, we submitted this idea to this DJ, and they like wrote us back immediately. And I'm like, oh my god, my son is gonna think I'm the coolest mom because like this is this Norwegian DJ that he loves and. Um, and so I wrote something because I know what their music sounds like because my kids listen to it all the time. So it was the poppiest thing I could think of. And I tried to really sing it with a lot of emotion and be step outside of myself. And they wrote back and just said, um, it's cool. It's a little too alternative. Could you try to make it sound more pop? And I'm like, dear God, like, I just can't do it. Like, I thought I was <laughs> giving it my, you know. 150% pop. There's something funny about trying to write something poppy and finding that your attempt to be reach out and grab you is still weird. <laughs> yeah. And and also in terms of the vocalizing, I was laughing. I was laughing with you, not at you. I have a problem with, with that too, where I think I'm really belting it sometimes. And I listen to it. And sometimes I can tell like, wow, that's really not... I didn't do that. But then I, <laughs> someone will say something in a complimentary way. Like, I really love how you are so mellow on this song, or whatever, and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I know, that was not my intention, yeah. So we're speeding towards that time of year To the day that marks that you're not here And I think I'll want to be alone So please understand if I don't answer the phone I'll just sit and stare at my so the next song you selected was the song November, which was the title track of an EP that came out in 2002. And it was part of that early stage of Azure Ray where you really um, put out a lot of songs. And I think November, you can draw a line between this song and Sleep because they deal with very similar subject matter. But November is even more direct and powerful in, in a way. Did you have a sense at this point that you and Arenda were settling into a project that had a defined sound and gave you uh, confidence to play around more? Yeah, that was that was on the EP. And that was after, you know, the, the self-titled record came out. And um, I think, did our other record or was it in between? But uh, we had definitely toured a lot as, as Azure and, um, 
And then we made this EP with our good friend Andy LeMaster. So it, and Eric Bachman wasn't there. So this was kind of like, okay, now this is our, what we're going to do with, with this. And I had written this song and it was kind of after like Peter's death had really sunk in. And so it wasn't just, you know, when I wrote sleep, I mean, that was, it was all fresh and that was just me literally like a few days after just like, you know, I mean, this was, so this was kind of like my life after it had sunk in. And, but when you were talking about songs and how do I really want to go through this every time I perform it, uh, November is that one, but I hold that song so dear to me. And so I do, and I do like performing it, but I get choked up still 20 years later. Like whenever I sing it, I'm having to like, my jaw starts to clench up and I'll, you know, I have to start breathing through my nose and try to get through it but um let me tell you the line that i get choked up on on that song that it like it gets me that if i'm this is one of those songs i'll, I'll tell you I, I can i guess it sure go ahead the childhood home that's a really good line but that's not it <laughs> no it, but it's not but i will say that's a great one no the line that gets me is i was afraid to be alone but now i'm scared that's how i like to be Ugh, maria what are you trying to do <laughs> well that was yeah i mean i was like for years after that, I mean, it was, well, I don't know. Yeah. And that was just also me. I mean, this are, I was in my twenties and this is figuring out just lots of these songs were us figuring out just who we were and what we wanted. And lots of times our biggest fears, I mean, that's why you're afraid. People are afraid of things, you know, that you actually, people are afraid of change, but I would say like half the time you might enjoy what you're most afraid of. When you write a song, you're kind of writing a a short story about someone who fucked up. You know, it's not often like this is the right way to be. Yeah. If I'm in a good mood, then I probably won't be writing <laughs> any songs today. You know, I'll be out enjoying life. It's when I'm kind of going, and I've got yeah. something I'm chewing on that a song occurs to me as this way of, of communicating something. that universal and making it specific and taking that specific and making it universal that is a skill and when we were talking about pop music earlier that's something that pop music usually does is it may have something very specific to the singer that's going on and you may feel that but you can also take those words and you can relate them to you know it can be about sleep or it can be about death or it can be about a breakup or it can be about you know something much heavier I got good at that because I just that was my style and I I just tend to write like that um, but then recently in the last few years, this is where I've really relied on Brad and Brad Armstrong is our mutual friend for those of you who don't know. Um, but Brad is such, you know, he, I think sometimes it drives him crazy how direct my, you know, he's just like, you can say it a more poetic way. Like he, I feel like, um, and so it's just been good because I want, I feel like, okay, well, I've done that. I've done that for so many records where I've just said it exactly. I mean, that style, like what you were just saying. And, um, and so I want to learn, um, I don't know, just like, just to, I want to grow as a lyricist and I want to like 
stretch the way I think and the way I write. And so Brad has been really great. Like he'll just, he's like my editor. Like I give him my lyrics and he's just like, okay, this is very direct. Like, you know, you could probably say it a different way where like, you know, like say what color shirt is she wearing instead of just wearing a shirt or like, what is, you know, what, I don't know. It was just really helpful. He's been helpful. And it was, um, it's been, especially because, and now I'm a mom and I'm so tired and it's really hard with lyrics now. I can't sit for eight hours, you know, and stay up all night and just like follow one thought until I feel like it like blossoms into something. Like I just, I don't, I don't have the time or the energy and I can't stay awake. Yeah. It's hard to find the time and the energy and that begins to make it hard to find the sort of passion for it. But Brad's definitely a good person to work with uh, if you need someone to kind of goose you. Um, he's got he's got good instincts. If you find someone who, who has instincts you can trust and you can add that to your own set of instincts that, that you also trust, the possibility of doing something really great is, is, is right there, you know? Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me when someone is able to come in after the fact and add their idea, which is an element that when I hear it, I go, oh my God, yes, that's what I heard almost like it was in a dream at some point. Brad has done that many times with, with songs I've written. Well, I would fight it. I would fight it forever because, you know, Brad and I have been such good friends for, what, 30 years. And, but back in the day, like he would, he would often, you know, he's like... He'll tell me, like, he'll give me constructive criticism even when I'm not asking, and I would get defensive, just like, well, but this is how I feel. Like, you can't, you can't tell me it can, should be written differently. Like, this is how I feel, you know? Like, I was just, and I feel like it's not until, till like, a few years ago that I'm, like, I am actually asking for, I'm actually asking for his constructive criticism and his help, and he's given me a lot. I guess you just have to be ready for that. But, I, you know, like, at first I was just like, well, it's, like, how could it, I don't know. Like, this is exactly how I feel. So how could I say it any other way? This is just how I feel. <laughs> you kind of want to say, hey, look, I'm the sheriff and the founder and the owner and operator of this song. So I get to say how things go around here. Right. Um, now go on, get. But upon reflection, you need people like that who are going to expose the weaknesses and maybe even expose weaknesses that you subconsciously knew were there already. You do. You do. He's like, he's very, very honest and he won't... Yeah, he doesn't hold back. He'll tell you exactly. And that's what, especially now in my life, I want it. I don't know if I really wanted it necessarily before, you know, but I like definitely do now. And he's been doing that. Arinda has been, you know, writing, um, working on a book and he's actually been helping her too, like with editing. He's just good old Brad. What would we do without him? Jeez, Brad, I hope you're listening. <laughs> this is the Brad hour. <laughs> you and Arinda made three albums in as many years and then there's a break before your next album drawing down the moon in 2010 which was followed a couple years later by an ep called as above so below it's one of the most melancholy things i own despite being a, a festive some might say inappropriately festive pink and white marbled vinyl but then there's another break before the ep in 2018 the waves ep what can you tell us about keeping the band going uh, despite those long breaks, are you continuing to be involved in each other's solo work during those gaps, or are you really off doing your own thing? Yeah, we've taken these long hiatuses. Um, I mean, and for no, like our friendships never took a hiatus. It was just really like, for me, because we, we found, you know, how we were talking about how we found that Azure mood and that sound, um, and it was, it, it was, um, restricting in a way 
in a, it was good. Like, I think that's why it was it, its own thing and it had its, but I was just wanting to like play some real poppy songs and rock songs and countryish songs. You know, I just was like, and I think she wanted to experiment too. We just wanted to experiment, but there really wasn't room for us to experiment inside of Azure because it had just become what it was. And we loved that about it. Um, restricting isn't a word. Is that a word? Is it restrictive? Restrictive is a word, yes. Yeah, but I think I said restricting. That's not a word, is it? Is I'll it? allow it. I'll allow it at this, at this can uh, you, point. Can you like? Can you put in restrictive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to say like restrictive, 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 restrictive. I promise I'll do a really, really sloppy edit that uh, will convince no one. <laughs> There it was, part one of my conversation with Maria Taylor. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I also hope you come back for part two, which is going to be just as good. We're going to talk about Maria's solo records all the way up to her brand new self-titled album that came out on November 11th, an album you can find probably wherever fine music is sold, or at least you could in a, in a sane world. But you can definitely get it through her website mariataylormusic.com or her label Flower Moon Records. Also look for Maria on Twitter at Maria underscore Taylor or on Instagram at Maria Taylor 1111. That's Maria Taylor 1111. Now when this episode comes out, she is also getting ready to play her big record release show in South Pasadena, California on December 7th. That is at the very ominous sounding South Pasadena Masonic Lodge. And I hope that she's able to warm that place up with some of her good vibes. There, I said the word one more time. Hope you folks come back for part two. It's coming really, really soon. Thanks, Maria. Restrictive in a way. It was um, restrictive in a way. It was um, restrictive in a way. It was um, restrictive in a way.